Hop in the Supermobile and join us for the spinoff podcast Beyond Metropolis, available exclusively for members of my Patreon community. It's a monthly tour across the DC universe with the signature Digging for Kryptonite style applied to your other DC favorites. Additional Patreon rewards include advanced listens, sponsorships, and more. We offer regular monthly memberships, discounted annual plans, free trials, and a la carte purchases. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato or click the link in the show notes for more. Thank you all. Before the rocket carrying Krypton's last hope, before the kindly couple, before the great metropolitan newspaper, there was the world that gave birth to the universe's greatest hero. Now, in Doomed Planet, we consider Krypton's history, legacy, and destruction, and the part of it that survived. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss a selection of pre-crisis stories spotlighting the bottle city of Kandor is returning guest, Rich Roney. Welcome. I am thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm excited to do this. I feel like I have kind of a weird relationship with the bottle city of Kandor due to the period of time, i.e. the triangle era that I grew up reading, compared to yourself who grew up reading in the Silver Age. So I feel like our perspectives are different, and hopefully it'll make for an interesting conversation. Now, you and I are working primarily off of the 2007 trade paperback collection entitled The Bottle City of Candor, which is, I think, a really nicely curated selection of the Silver and Bronze Age Candor stories. And Absolutely agree. I think it'll give Absolutely us agree. a lot to talk about. And a little bit later, I'll sort of rattle off what those issues were and creative teams, and we'll talk through each one. But I always like to start with the personal side of all of this, because one of the issues that we read that's collected in that trade paperback is your first ever comic book. Can you a talk about that? Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, one of the stories is from World's Finest 143. It was the first issue I ever bought. And 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 we, we can get into the specifics of the story, but I was eight, year, eight years old. Prior to that, when I was like five and six and seven, where I lived outside of Chicago, I obviously saw the reruns of the George Reeves TV show. And that was all I knew. That was the sum total. And as we've we've discussed before, you know, basically there was four cast, five cast members and then rotating bad guys. All I knew was the TV show. And that was kind of a recycling thing of either Superman um, facing a dilemma with his powers or fighting bank robbers or something like that. So when I got this book, it it brought me into the world of reading comic books. I mean, it it and I, I was so excited to reread that story because um, I haven't read it in sixty years. But that being said, um, it opened my eyes to so many things about the Superman mythos. It has a very very special place in my heart, and we can we can talk about some of the things. But all I knew was Superman from TV. So here to learn about the fortress and Krypton and Kendor and 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 the whole myth of Kendor. I mean, that was like this weird blend of super modern science and and mythology with the flying dragons and the sword fights. So it was a myth, uh, a mixture of science and magic. Um, I I have tremendously fond memories of that that book and that that summer, uh, a few weeks thereafter, I bought. My first Justice League, which was uh, Crisis on Earth 3, 
And then a few weeks after that, I missed it by one issue uh, for Detective, but my grandfather bought me um, the second uh, Detective issue of the new look Batman. So there's just so much going on. I have, you can tell it in my voice. I'm pretty, pretty excited about, uh, about that era of my life. So I guess I'm curious, this was the first time that you went back to World's Finest 143 since, since you were a kid? Oh, yes, yes. And how did it hold up generally? Um, and while you answer that, let me, while you let that marinate, let me also just say as a preface, because we'll be talking about a bunch of Silver Age stories. And this is not the first time we've done it on this podcast. It's not the first time you and I have done it on this podcast. We've talked about Silver Age stories before a couple of times. And whenever we do, pre-crisis generally, but especially Silver Age, a lot of times there's a little bit of fun to be had at the expense of the books and the stories. Different time, different sensibilities. There are some things that that can be kind of silly. At the same time, what I do want to say, especially to any fans, I mean, like yourself, who have a lot of love and grew up reading these stories, I want to say any any jokes that, that may be made are made lovingly with a lot of respect for the creators who originally worked on them. And also, speaking for myself in particular, with the acknowledgement that people have different kinds of relationships with the material. So again, I look at these Silver Age stories and it's kind of more of this curiosity or this historical exploration that I'm doing. Whereas I know you look at these stories and you grew up reading these stories. They mean something different to you. So Again, for any diehard Silver Age fans out there, if 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 any 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 humor is to be had here, again, it's all with love and respect. So I just wanted to say that. But yeah, how did this hold up for you? Uh, for me, the story holds up very well. I mean, um, we can get into it, but there was just so much packed into it. Um, I'd almost prefer to save that for our discussion. Okay, we can. If that's okay. We but, can circle but, back but to that. It, it held up well. In Good my, in my mind. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So when we talk about Candor. The bottle or bottled city, I guess, depending on your your perspective. We had a discussion about this off mic because I guess in my mind, and I think in yours as well, we always kind of think of it as the bottled city. It is a city in a bottle, yet the way it's, I guess, often referred to, or at least in terms of the title of this trade paperback, it's the bottle city. So not to split hairs or be nitpicky here, but I, I guess there's a little bit of a <laughs> distinction there. I've, I've always put a D on the end of it in my discussions. Yeah, well, well, wherever wherever people land on that, I guess there are some different approaches. But the bottle or bottled city of Candor, this Kryptonian city that was miniaturized and placed in a bottle by the intergalactic villain Brainiac prior to the destruction of Krypton. And this trade takes us from the super duel in space from Action Comics 242 in 1958, which introduced both Brainiac and the bottle city of Candor, early Silver Age, all the way through Superman 338 in 1979, Let My People Grow. So this trade covers, it's not every single Candor story, but this takes us from its introduction to its the restoration of its people and buildings. Briefly, we'll get to that <laughs> at, at the end of this. So I, I really feel like it, it, ran, it ran the gamut. It was a nice group of stories. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's a couple that... Uh we'll talk about that I don't think stand the test of time, and there's some that really do stand the test of time. But what I found a little bit over time was so exciting or so valuable about this is that Kandor gave... You keep saying Kandor. <laughs> I'm going to be such a jerk here. Kandor, no? Kandor. Uh, I mean, every every adaptation has always pronounced it that way. Okay. Uh, 
It's okay. No, no. I mean, uh, I say it more for, for benefit of our audience, for any audience members who are like, why? And I would be curious to the audience. Is there anyone out there who, who pronounces it differently? My, my pronunciation, my understanding, the way it's always been said has been candor. Candor. Okay. Um, outside of the books, this is my first exposure. I don't remember this in like Superman, the animated series. Uh, so candor, uh, what what I thought was really helpful was it gave Superman immediate access to Kryptonian culture, immediate access. And it also opened the environment where he'd be in, in a situation where he didn't have his superpowers, so he'd be challenged on a different level than would be the case, you know, if he were on Earth or uh, under under a yellow sun. So again, the immediate immediate access to his heritage and his Kryptonian culture and even for others, they learned about the history of Krypton, and then also the fact that it's an environment where he had to use his ingenuity and his brains a little bit more, and he was at risk. No, those are great points, and I think those are, because I go back and forth on this, and I'm still wrestling with this, of, of how I feel about the Bottle City and its place in the larger Superman mythology, because I, I don't disagree with what you're saying. It does allow him this more than a glimpse, but this experience with this world that he'd otherwise never know, right, in, in the flesh. And you're right, once he's there, he is challenged in a way physically that he's not otherwise, usually. And there's also this added layer of tragedy, not only that the city and its inhabitants were, were literally ripped from their home, even though it ended up sparing them the destruction of the planet, but still, they were ripped from their homes and they've been kept as pets by Brainiac, essentially, but the fact that until we get to let my people grow, Superman is unable to restore them. So for this godlike being, especially during a period of time That's where his powers were really off the charts and he was able to do a lot more that would later be scaled back. That's a good point. Sort of that that fallibility. This was something that he wasn't able to accomplish. I think I think there's a lot to mine there, I guess. Kind of the flip of this. And I don't I still don't know exactly where I land, but you know, you talk about he has immediate access, right, to a part of his home world. I guess my question is, is it too much access? Because he, as much as much talk as there is about how he's unable to restore them all to size, through various machinations over the course of these stories that we read, he and his friends seemingly never have too much trouble shrinking down and then restoring their original size. We have people coming out of the bottle left and right. And you also have the people of Kandor who are essentially watching the events on Earth through their telescopes and screens and all of that. So... And on top of that, and I know we'll get into this more specifically, but the amount of doubles. Uh, oh, who we're going to get. <laughs> I mean, th- there's there's at least five, <laughs> at least five perfect twins. But I guess my question is, and I, again, even for myself, I don't know exactly where I land because I do think, much like the rest of the Silver Age, I think Candor is a great representation of how additive this time was to the mythology. And it introduced so many characters and elements that, look, we just did a couple of episodes on the Krypton television series, right? Which I, I love, right? And so I can appreciate the groundwork laid by a lot of these Silver Age stories. So I'm not saying there's no value here, but it's just, yeah, I, I do wonder if if it sort of became too much, too much, too much back and forth between, between Earth and Kandor. I don't know. I mean, did you feel that at all or it, it felt kind of appropriate. I mean, I guess it's skewed too because we're reading all the Candor stories like in a row, so it, it that well, colors it. My uh my my big personal impression was 
again, because the first book I bought, it was very early in the chronology. But I do think as time wore on, and I don't know if it was um, characteristic of the Bronze Age in general or, or so much exposure to this, but I got tired of it. I mean, it didn't have the same um, punch or the same energy. I, I do think, if I may, um, 1959, maybe up to 1964, as Mark Wade says, they were in that world-building phase where Weisinger um, the editor was just adding so much all the time, you know, between all the variations of kryptonite, gold kryptonite, silver kryptonite, um, the phantom zone, the fortress. Uh, even you and I had a marvelous discussion on Lexor. So this this world building was really taking off. But then I think they jumped the shark. I think they did it so much, it lost its punch. It lost its pizzazz in my mind. I got... And granted, you know, when, when I got into college, I got much, I scaled back a lot of my reading. But I loved the early years, and then I think it became just too, uh, too routine. When we talk about, and we have talked about, the post-crisis reboot, right, and this real scaling back, and this notion that there are too many, can, too many Kryptonians out there. And then he's the only one. Right, and I guess a lot of times... I, and maybe other readers, think about that more in terms of, of Supergirl and Zod and, and some of the other heavy hitters. But reading this, I'm saying to myself, yeah, I mean, like, there are all these, all these Kandorians out there. And again, I know by the end of Let My People Grow, they're sort of off then in their own, now, in their own dimension, but still. Interesting um, um, sidebar. As a child, and I forget what issue it was, but... Uh, I read a lot of the adventure comics Legion of Superheroes, and I think it might have been Adventure 356, and something happened. Uh, There were five Legionnaires who were all orphans. They went to some planet, and there was some meteorite or some mineral or some diamond or something that forced all of them to regress to being like five-year-olds. But Brainiac 5 was one of them, and he retained his uh, his computer intelligence, right? So one of the nurses is kept trying to get information on the children. And at first, Brainiac 5 says, oh, this is Kal-El. He's from Krypton. And the nurse goes, what are you talking about? Krypton exploded centuries ago. And he goes, oh, I meant Rokin. And then there was an editorial narrative at the bottom of the, the panel that said um, uh, Kandor was... Um, enlarged, and they were freed from the bottle. Uh, Superman accomplished that late in the 20th century. So we're going to get to the end of this thing, but I knew it, you know, from the time I was like 10, I knew it was coming. So while they did play up the immediate, like, oh, I'm limited, it shows my limitations, and I do feel, you know, he, in some stories, he carried a bit of guilt for not not being more focused on letting them be um, released from captivity. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And yes, I, I was aware, though I didn't read that adventure comic story. I do know what you're talking about. And, and yeah, I mean, that's cool that they, uh, that Let My People Grow pays off that, that, that note from that earlier story. So, oh, the last thing I'll say just by means of setup, going back to where I started, where speaking of, of post-crisis and the era that I grew up reading, i.e. the Triangle era, you know, that was the period of time where Kal-El was the only, the only Kryptonian. But as we've discussed, that didn't stop the creators from from incorporating 
characters and elements from pre-crisis continuity, but with a different spin to sort of fit within the mandate that they were given about no other Kryptonian. So we've talked about how we ended up with the, you know, the pocket universe, Superboy and Supergirl, right? And the long journey that she would go on to have and, and Zod and the other Kryptonian criminals from that pocket dimension. And Kandor specifically, and we came upon this not too long ago when we did one of our Triangle Era events, but there was the bottle city that was was created and collected and maintained by the demon Tolos. And so it wasn't a, a city of of Kryptonians, but they were representatives from a ton of different alien races, and they were all imprisoned. So it wasn't the entire planet, but it was representatives of all of these different races uh, bottled right by this this demon who would then be able to summon one of them at will and possess their body outside of the bottle that's wild i i know nothing about that it's it's interesting because and this is another thing i go back and forth with i i think there are certain concepts certain characters that maybe are just kind of undeniable within the superman lore because Again, this was late night, so maybe a decade and change after Crisis on Infinite Earths. And here we have another version of the Bottle City. And look, I think the take that they came up with, those Triangle Era creators, was a solid one. It's a different spin on it. And it still taps into at least some of those themes where Superman is unable to to free these people. So there's that. And he can go down there and have adventures. And I, I think what's where they where you kind of hit a wall i think in terms of the potential of this is that you lose that entire component that these are members of his of his doomed planet right there is something very powerful about that that he can he he can have interactions with them but there is still i'm kind of arguing against myself a little bit he does have access but it is limited right there is still that barrier literal and figurative so it, it, I think it does create a, a fair amount of drama. And then when you get to where we're going later in this event of episodes that we're doing, when we talk about the new Krypton saga from the comics, uh, from the from the late aughts, when Kandor is restored to its full size, and now you have Superman caught between his two worlds, I think that's where you kind of see the potential of Kandor fully realized. Because now it's not sort of in the abstract anymore. It's like his culture and his people are there, but there's a barrier of removal. Now when they're there and he's really caught between them, what happened? So so again, I think there's probably a reason why we eventually circled back around to the quote-unquote true version of Kandor. I just think it's interesting that in the interim, we had this alternate take on it. And again, I think when it comes to Supergirl, when it comes to Zod, when it comes to the, to the Bottle City, I, I think th- those might be some of those ideas that are just sort of undeniable. You can't keep them down, despite whatever editorial mandates, right? Creators will find some ways to bring them back and I mean, you could argue the creators are just caught up in what they grew up reading and are just trying to bring some, but I, I, but I don't know. I think there is a lot of value to it. And I think some of these things now really have become so ingrained in the Superman mythology that they have their place. So now all that being said, and I know the focus here is our, is the pre-crisis stories and we'll, we'll dive into that. But currently, I mean, are you aware of Kandor's current status in the books at the moment? No, I'm not. So during the the Brian Michael Bendis run on the super titles a few years ago, the villain Rogel Czar, I know you at least know the name, right? Well, he's the one who was responsible for the planet's destruction, according to the Bendis run. In okay, event, okay. He destroys the bottle, killing its inhabitants. Really? Yeah. And to my knowledge, and I'm pretty much current on the books, uh, they that has not been, <laughs> Genie hasn't been put back in the bottle, so to speak. So that's so that's it the was current ma- status. It was genocide. I mean, yeah. it was yes. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow, I did not know that. But what I would say, I think I I stand by what I said that there are certain ideas that are undeniable. So I really think it's only a matter of time before we see another iteration restored. I I genuinely think that. But in any event, that's kind of where we are in the books at the moment. Sad, sad to say, as we're here to celebrate Candor. <laughs> yeah, but again, yeah. I feel like this is a a, a blip, and uh, we'll we'll circle back around yet again. I'm a proud backer of the Paragons of Earth crowdfunder. The creative team of Percival Constantine, Thomas DJ, and Eric Johns have plucked forgotten Golden Age superheroes from the public domain, reinvented them as their own sort of Justice League, and put them up against a Lovecraftian apocalypse. Support this project by going to crowdfunder.com, that's crowdfunder without an E, slash Paragons comic, and read a free sample. Also, Perry, who's been a guest on the show, hosts the Superhero Cinephiles podcast about superheroes in media. Be sure to listen wherever you get podcasts. We reference the television series Smallville a lot around here, and there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always hold on to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. On that note, the super duel in space is where this trade paperback starts appropriately enough. Very early Silver Age story by Otto Binder, Al Plastino, uh, again, 1958. Uh, and this is what introduces Brainiac. At this point, he's just known to us as this alien, space alien scientist, right? We would later come to learn that he's this living computer that's been given humanoid form and his form would continue to evolve. But we're just introduced to him as this alien with his pet monkey, Coco, on this flying saucer with an impenetrable force field. You know, if there's one theme that's constant throughout these stories, it's that damn force field that comes back around. But uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is where we start. So, I mean, let me toss it to you first. I, I, we've talked about this story before when we did our, our initial Silver Age episode. But I, I guess this time around, what, what particularly stood out to you or, or what did you want to talk about with this? Well, uh, I do want to give, uh, I don't want to, drag into this too much, but I, I did send you, I found one obscure page uh, from the 1956, I think, Superman um, uh, newspaper strip. And what I learned from some of the reading is that the newspaper strip strip was kind of a, a Petri dish and a test ground for stories in the comics. So there was this story where there was, I, I think they called it the bottle city of Der Elva, right? And Brainiac in the newspaper strip had a different name, Romando or something like that. But again, it was the same premise that Superman learns about this, this miniaturized captive city. The, now, the bottle was a little different in the newspaper strip. Okay, but then the same thing. So I, I'm done with that. It was kind of a test ground. Um in rereading it this in the context of the trade, uh, I, I enjoyed the story more this second reading. Um, again, I was very impressed by the by the optimism, opti- optimism, and the idealism. Um, like because there is it's a short like what eleven or twelve pages, and uh, somehow you know Superman and also Candor is like an afterthought. It's like only halfway in the story. And then by dumb luck, he Superman goes into this bottle and he realizes this is Krypton. 
And somehow, miraculously, out of a million people, he bumps into his father's college roommate, yeah. right? Kimda. Kimda, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was Jorel's college roommate. It's like, oh, you don't say. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, ah. Uh, but I, uh, the only thing that I, I enjoyed so, so much was it did lay the groundwork. You could tell they, they kind of, it was set up for the future. Again, I was impressed with the optimism. Um, yeah, it really opened the door for future stories, I thought, very, very well. Yeah, you bring up an interesting point because it's true. I, I the, the issue introduces both Brainiac and the Bottle City, but it's really, you know, it's a Brainiac story, and Brainiac is the main thrust of it. And it's one of those things where I do agree. I think they were planting seeds for the future. Maybe they figured, okay, we'll continue to work with, with Candor in the years to come. But it's also, this was such a period of innovation and, and it was all new. And so it's like, yeah, they probably didn't know what was going to really take off. And we've discussed this in one of our other uh, uh, discussions with uh, uh, Lex Luthor, right? But they retconned. I mean, in this story, Brainiac appears to be human because he has to go in suspended animation. Yeah. But then a few year, years later, we learned that he was, he was, he's a, a computerized being. Um, and I guess an Android um, with a 12th level intelligence. But in, in the story, you wonder, well, why does he got to go into, you know, this preservation tank? Well, and on that note of preservation, right? What I, I think, look, there have been different takes on brand, especially in the post-crisis triangle era. We had the Milton Fine version of the See, character. See, I don't, I don't know any of that, but sorry. But no, that's okay. But, uh, I, but but yeah, on that note, what we're what we're told here in this first issue is that yeah, he's this space alien. He's collecting these cities to repopulate his homeworld, which had been wiped out by a plague, right? So this business about him being this artificial intelligence that wiped out life on his home planet, and he's collecting right just to preserve knowledge across the universe. You know that comes later, but at the outset here, yeah, it's that a plague has wiped out his homeworld, and he's collecting these cities. He collects a bunch of cities from Earth. Uh, and he's going to repopulate his world. So, th- I mean, that's that's our starting point. So interesting, too, to see the evolution of Brainiac. You know, I guess what stood out to me about this, uh, about this super duel in space was, uh, you know, so <laughs> Lois and Clark are on this, are on this spacecraft, right, that they're covering for the paper, this, this you know, mission to the stars, uh, when they encounter Brainiac's flying saucer. And, you know, it's like <laughs> Clark throws on his suit and like, and ditches the spacecraft. And Lois is like, oh, he's so scared. Uh, which is, you know, it's like insane that it's like, this guy's like flying through space. <laughs> but uh, again, he can't get, of course, changes into Superman and he can't break through Brainiac's uh, force, force field. field. Yeah. And so he seemingly retreats, right? And to the audience, you're like, oh my God, like he he can't do it. He's real, he's, he's admitting defeat, right? And he goes back to earth. But of course he has the foresight to know that Brainiac is going to target Metropolis. And so he makes sure he's there so that he can be miniaturized and get onto Brainiac ship. So very clever. I mean, that's the thing with all these Silver Age stories where there's always that that little that little twist, right? Where, you know, you think it's going one way and then there's the little reveal. And I mean, you could say that about stories generally, right? Stories generally always need to sort of surprise and reverse our expectations. But in these Silver Age stories in particular, it's always and even just from the cover or from that the you know, the first page where you get that little tease of what's to come. It's like, it's always different than what it, what the, the truth ends up being. Uh, agree. You know, I so, agree. so you have that. And so once he's on the ship, again, he, he's able to, to leave the, the, the bottled metropolis. And then yes, to your point, he very conveniently <laughs> finds Candor, which has been uncorked. Yeah. One, <clears throat> what a coincidence, Candor. <laughs> 
And then two out of the million, one million inhabitants, he finds his father's college roommate. Yeah. I think that was the only story Himda appeared in. Yeah, because then later he's replaced by... Oh, Nor... Norvan? Norvan. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what that was about necessarily. But yeah, well, that's the first person he, he meets. In being the cynic that I am, uh, after what uh, Kimda did on the last page to help out Superman, <laughs> maybe he went into witness protection because I got to believe the other inhabitants of Kandor were like, what are you doing? We could have been enlarged. Who are you to make this decision unilaterally? I know, it's fascinating. So Kimda explains how Brainiac's shrinking process works, essentially, and uh, helps Superman escape the bottle, right? Because in the bottle, he doesn't have his powers. And there are enough charges left on Brainiac's ship, these vector, hyper-vector charges or whatever they're called, to restore the all Earth. of the bottles. Yeah, except... <laughs> except Kandor. Uh, and, he, you know, Superman's prepared, as you would expect him to, right? He's prepared to make that sacrifice. He'll remain miniaturized so that his people can grow uh, and this entire city of millions of people. Yeah. Can Apparently, be this is the only time he can't use super speed, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know that's true. Yeah, you couldn't hit the button and then fly over there. I know, but you, yet, or you couldn't rig up uh, uh, some sort of apparatus to hit the button, and you. It's interesting. I look, and I, I look. I realize we are we're overanalyzing these stories, right? I I, I get it, but that's what we're here for. That's, that's a podcast, but. It's it's interesting too. So he's about to to enlarge Kandor, but then Kimda intervenes and sends the rocket right to push the button. Kimda flies the rocket. Oh, he does it himself. Okay. Yeah, and and but to complement the writers and the artists of the time, they put all the ingredients in there for Superman to escape, and they put all the ingredients in there for Kimda to take action. That would allow Superman to regain his his normal size and stature to protect Earth. So he took a very principled, uh, but but it really wasn't too too democratic. Um, <laughs> I know he makes a very unilateral decision on behalf of all of the people of Canada. Also, too, again, it's very noble, and again, it's established. He's he you know, and Superman taught he recounts his whole history right about coming to Earth and becoming this hero, and it's very noble where Kim is like, we don't want to deprive the people, but it's like. Hey, you would have had millions of potential supermen who <laughs> one of them could have stepped in. For. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did like the, and it, it rings true with the character that we associate with Superman. He was prepared to make the sacrifice and sacrifice himself to remain miniature, um, and then and then in a very beneficial way for him, the decision was taken out of his hands. Um, yeah, and it ends again on this note of. I, one day, and even I think the last line is, "I'll you know who knows who knows." Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so, but I I give them a lot of credit because again, especially for a story of the day for kids, you might expect there to be that, you know, that kind of happy ending where there there's he's able to enlarge them, even if they don't stay on Earth or this plane of existence or whatever. You know, you you might expect that, but to end on this somewhat downer note of like, hey, I wasn't able to do this, but and it's a quest for the future. As well, you cool. said, it also is another uh, elemental force to show his limits. Like he couldn't save his parents when they died. And this is another thing because at, at this moment in time, Superman could juggle planets. He could break the time barrier. He could do so many things. He was basically uh, omnipotent. Um, so this was something that he couldn't overcome. It showed his limits and his fallibility. Um, 
I, I'm really going to nitpick here, but not that any of us are experts on the the mechanics of Brainiac's ship, but there's a there's a a line in the issue about Brainiac needing to charge up the ship with with cosmic power, and he's about to do that process, and then later Superman's not able to restore Kandor because that those you know the the ray is out of juice. Couldn't you just wait? Couldn't you charge it up? This is what I'm saying. Well, I I think in later stories, didn't they get into something that one of the elements? Was there there was a degree of scarcity yeah. to it? I, and I have to confess, Anthony, I I was more impressed with how they did this as a setup and like you said, planted seeds for the future. I was oh, yeah. more intrigued by that. No, no, of course, of course. Uh so that then takes us to the shrinking Superman from Action 245. Again, Otto Bender, this time Wayne Boring on the art, uh, from the same year, 1958, the shrinking Superman. There were a couple of things in this that were <laughs> hilarious, hilarious, starting with the fact that the, the setup for this is Superman has brought Lois to the Fortress of Solitude to show it off. She's going to write an article, and then he has to go to run some errands, and he leaves her there, and she bumps into the bottle and knocks it over. And, and uh, <laughs> creates cracks in it, so that, that apparently... I mean, I wondered, what about the atmosphere? I mean, I this is the first time I ever read this story that you just referenced. Um, but she knocks over the bottle. It doesn't crack and splatter, but there I'm assuming there are like spider, spider web cracks. Um, and this villain is able to kind of walk through them to escape. Um, but yeah, I, that was something I would attribute to Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, I felt a little out of character for Lois. It's just like I don't know. It's like maybe next time put a little uh, yeah, put a little gate railing. around it or something. Yeah, and also, you know, maybe put it on a bigger table. Now, <laughs> at the end of the very first story, it looked like it, it, it looked like he had it exposed to the elements on the last panel. Like, hey, I got this little shelf in the Arctic. You know, like four foot by six foot. I'll just put the bottle there. Yeah. But so the the renegade scientist, I think, is what they call him, who escapes is Zach Cole. Zach Cole. Zach Cole. Yeah. And he uses one of the devices in the fortress to remake his face into yeah. Superman. I can't believe he wasn't a double to begin with. There are so many of them floating around. He as was we'll the first. Uh, well, he but was he the didn't first start. We, yeah. He was the first we knew of. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, but there yeah. are others who are just na- who naturally are identical to Superman. Right. His cousin Vanzi, his brother Dick Z. Donnell. Donnell, yeah, we and, can't forget about him. Valdon. Yes. And Part of Valdon the squad. And and to go a step further, I can remember as a child reading a Superboy story where Valdon's son goes back in time to meet with Superboy and he hap- happens to be a perfect twin to Superboy. It's it's fu- so I don't have a ton of experience watching soap operas. Although when I was a kid, my mother used to watch ABC's All My Children. So that meant that as a kid, sometimes I would watch ABC's All My Children. And then years later at our comic shop, where you and I both spent a lot of time and I worked a lot, uh, the owner of the store, Steve, enjoyed watching ABC's All My Children. So we would watch that as a store. So it came back around for me. But I mean, you know, that's very much a, a, a soap opera trope, right? That there are all these twins and doubles and lookalikes. But I mean, Candor is just like littered with them. It's insane. There's five. There's five we know of. Five we know of. I mean, in the span of like six stories here, we got four relatives, or at least three relatives 
and then Valdon. And they're all perfect copies, perfect twins. And this is, I think, look, again, I, I, I think this points to a problem because I think there's already a good argument to be made that having millions of Kandorians in this bottle, you know, perhaps it undermines the... The, the tragedy inherent in the Superman origin story that the planet was destroyed. I mean, yes, that still happened, but you have millions of them who survived, albeit in this removed form. So just from the jump, right, I think there's a there's an argument to be made. But then on top of it, so it's like, if already maybe we're making Superman a little less special because there's all these other Kryptonians, it's like now you're creating doubles of him. You have just like literally just extras of Superman. Anyway. Yeah. But Zackel emerges and uses this device in the fortress to remake his face into Superman's and and disguises himself as Superman and and initially fools Lois. And then the real Superman comes back and Lois creates this test, right? She asks them about one of these these bad guys, Gunner, that they recently put away. And Lois knows that uh, uh, he had an eye patch, right? And that's what she was trying to elicit from the true Superman. But, and again, a bit of a misdirect here where we think... Uh, you know, the 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 double has been uh, uncovered, but it actually was Superman himself who gave the wrong answer because he knew if the two of them engaged in battle, Lois and the bottle could have been could have been injured, killed, destroyed in the fortress. So he knew he had to remove himself from the situation, which I get, but it's like you didn't know you had a way back out. So that was a pretty big. Isn't that gamble. pretty risky? And I commend you on your summary. I agree with everything. But I think there's one point in there, in this story, if I remember correctly, Superman is in the bottle. And again, as you said, there was that twist. He chose to let himself be put in the bottle from a safety standpoint for both Lois and, and, the, and the city. Um, but he's walking around and he's impressed with the sights. And he says something like, you know, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to take if I had to live here or something like that. You know? I'm thought like, Whoa, what are you doing? You got, you got a planet to protect, right? You got this superpowered villain up on Earth, but he didn't he say something like that? Like yeah, he was I think walking so. around like, you know, this is this is a pretty beautiful place. It wouldn't be too hard to take if I had if I had to live here. And the way that Zackel was able to enlarge himself was by using this element Illumium. 349. 349, which Superman then later finds a few specks of in Zackel's lab, and that allows him to restore himself to original size and send Zackel back. But in the meantime, this rogue Kandorian has taken Superman's place and has been acting like Superman, right, in order to throw off any suspicion. They didn't go here, but I thought, for a moment, I thought they might, and I think it could have been really interesting if, like, while he's playing the part of Hero some actual heroism is, emerged. It, yeah, emerges within him. I, that could have been an interesting take, not the way they went, but yeah, that's what I was thinking at first. Yeah, we saw a little bit of that on occasion with our discussion of Lex Luthor, where he, yeah. right? Um, here, what I find so funny, he married Lois. I think they got married. This was hilarious. I'll so, let you, you so, so yes, they will, annu- they will later get it annulled, but right after the ceremony... Lois says to him, okay, we're married now. You have to tell me your secret identity. And of course, Zackle doesn't know the secret identity. And the turn is so fast where he's like, basically, I have to kill her. (laughs) And so he's like, oh, I'm going to build us a house out in the country. So why don't you drive up there and meet me? And then he destroys the road to create this huge cliff for her to drive off All on the same page. It's a, I know you're a fellow Arrested Development fan, Yes. 
A little bit. There's yes, a run, yes. great running bit on the show where characters, especially Michael and Job, they'll they'll make a decision and then instantly regret it. And the line is, "I've made a huge mistake." And that was what I had ringing in my ears as I was reading this. Where he's like, "Okay, we're married." She's like, "What's your secret identity?" He's like, "I've made a huge mistake. She must die." <laughs> it's like the turnaround. You have whiplash reading this. Like he went from "I'm going to be with this woman" to "She's got to go." Amazing. You're so right. And then, it, of course, it, Superman comes back and intervenes. But yeah, it was and, so funny. And it's all in the span, literally, of one panel. Tell me your secret identity. I've got a killer. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say, look, uh, when we talk about Lois Lane, and we, we have talked about Lois, and I've got a lot more Lois coverage planned for the future. We're going to really give her and the other supporting cast members there due. We're getting there. This is a long journey and a long process. But... In these stories, right, this one and a number of the later ones, especially that Leo Dorfman two-parter with uh, the demon in the bottle and courtship Kryptonian style, you know, a lot of business about Lois wanting to be with Superman and marry Superman. And I know this was a major theme during this period. And look, I- I'm not here to to judge through modern eyes, right? It's It's clearly a very dated depiction of Lois Lane. She's come very far and I vastly, vastly prefer the modern independent woman that she is. The thing that makes me sad, though, when I read some of these stories is that we have looked at those initial Golden Age stories where she was more of a go-getter and that wasn't sort of her her whole reason for being. And so I think that's just the part of it that makes me, you know, that bums me out a little bit where, you know, you kind of had this this turn into this iteration of Lois. And thankfully, it doesn't last forever. I agree. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They're also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. So that brings us to 1960s Dolls of Doom from Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane number 21 by Edmund Hamilton and Kurt Schaffenberger. A bit of a of a, a lengthy setup here before we get to the candor of it all. You with, are so right. The Doll King. It's this convoluted plot where they decide to make Lois Lane dolls, right? With the ultimate aim. And they, they're very successful, these dolls. It's quite the robust business. It's sort of like, hey, Doll King, just make these dolls. Like, you're, you're good yeah. to go. But all, all, all with an aim towards eventually presenting Superman with a life a life-sized doll with a bomb inside that they know Superman will accept because he accepts any gift that's given to him and stores it in his fortress. And once the doll is in the fortress with the bomb, they'll detonate it and they'll take out his fortress. That's the that's the long setup here. And we do get to a point where the life-sized doll is defective. And so the department store manager ropes Lois into pretending to be the doll in the window display. This was quite a scene. And getting her to cry. Um, yeah, no, yeah, no, that's like, no, go, that, go, no, no, go. no, 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 you could do it better than no, me. No, it's, it's so funny because the doll has all of these features, right? Can cry, can sneeze, can sleep, right? And so the, the department guy wants, 
you know, wants this life-size doll to be able to do that. And and so he's like, it's so comical where he's like cutting onions and he's wearing a mask and he's cutting onions and it's making Lois cry. And everyone's like, wow, this doll is so lifelike. And then he, you know, uh, when it's time for her to go to sleep, like he gives her a sleeping pill. Yeah. It's uh, it's something. It's again, uh, you know, like I said, you know, that's one of those things reading it. It's like so wacky. Oh, it's oh, so wacky. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, because so by virtue of taking that sleeping pill, she falls asleep. Some of the handymen think she's the doll. We got to ship it to uh, Superman. So they put her effectively in, in, in a wooden crate, right? She's still asleep. The Superman Revenge Squad thinks, hey, the bomb's in the doll. We're going to destroy the fortress. Meanwhile, Super, I'm sorry, Lois goes to the fortress, wakes up, and then didn't some like uh, mysterious uh, uh, gas or uh, meteorite or something release this toxic gas? It was part of the fortress's cleaning slash defense mechanism where it like it sprays this periodically to take out any contaminants. It's like... You know, if you're inviting your friends here on a semi-regular you might want basis, to turn off. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's the? Are we on that a 24-hour cycle? But Lois and and we're going to get into this in this story and the next story. The only way to get in is the exchange ray. Yeah, I'm assuming this was introduced in a story that was not collected here. Do you know? I truly don't know because it's I, just in like it's just here as if it's just a thing that's always right, been an where, exchange yeah. ray. And there was a time when I was a child reading stories that for every person that entered Kandor, a Kandorian had to come out. It had to be this zero-sum game, this balance. So Lois, rather than dying, thinks, you know what? I'll get that creature uh, from Krypton that, or Kandor that is not subject to toxic gas. I'll change places with this creature. A mistake is made, and Lois exchanges places with her exact twin, Sylvia DeWitt, who's the wife of Van Z. And she's human. Yes, yes. Uh, that that story, that whole story about how she's human, she had superpowers too. But on that that website we view, Superman Through the Ages, the story's there. It's Lois Lane 15, how Van Z courted and married Sylvia. So instead of the creature substituting with Lois, her ex- identical twin, yet again another identical twin, exchanges places. But Sylvia has Kryptonian powers, so the gas doesn't kill her. But then Lois gets trapped. I don't know why. I don't know why they didn't shift back. Right? Maybe the machine broke. That that happened a couple of times. The the exchange ray broke, and then Lois runs into. Uh, how would you say it? Uh, Dixie, or it's I don't. I don't want to call it Dixie. Spelled Dixie. I think that's probably what it was. No. Okay, like Dixie cups or something. Dix. I mean, you well, know, well, well, as I'm talking to someone named Richard, I mean, it's like it's you know the 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 nickname Dick has really fallen out of use these days. But back in the day, I mean, that would have been more common, right? I mean, I I don't know. In my head, I was saying Dixie, but yeah, maybe well, maybe there was some more exotic um, pronunciation that was intended. Um, I don't know. Okay, so Dixie, who is again <laughs> an identical twin, he's Van Z's twin brother. He shows up at the uh, their apartment, and he's wearing a Superman costume, as you do, as you do, right? But he was, I guess, his the, his nieces and nephews were really excited by it. But he's a perfect twin, and 
So now we've we've in the span of what one year we've had three twins between the guy with the plastic surgery Van Z and Dixie. Dixie becomes enamored and infatuated with Lois. Um, and, and then then it didn't work out. Well, you know, it's like everything Lois would want, right? That someone who forget personality, I guess. It's like <laughs> I guess physical. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, I guess, oh, well, I'll be generous and say he embodies a lot of the same qualities and ideals. So maybe he was really similar in terms of, of character as well. But uh, he proposes marriage to her. And I think before she has a chance to answer, she and Sylvia switch places. Maybe there was some business that the Ray needed to be replenished or fixed or something like that. And But Lois's ultimate takeaway is I couldn't have said yes, right? Because I couldn't, I couldn't take Sylvia's place, right? Like her, this is her home. Her family is here. So I think she recognized like she wouldn't have been able to say yes, but okay. sort of she's pulled away before she has the chance to to answer. But yeah, I, again, it's it's a it's a it's a funny. I mean, it's really it's really farcical. It's it's really I think uh, I think that's a good word for it in terms of all of these mix ups with the doll and how she ends up in the fortress and again switching places with Sylvia instead of the animal. Like all of these all of these little mishaps. It is it is very much a farce. Uh, to get to this point. But yes, it introduces yet another one of and these doubles. Now, interestingly, there's three so far and audience more to come, but we only saw um, Zach Cool and Dixie once. They only each only appeared once. Yeah, I know. So our next one is, oh, the boy in the bottle. This is where... Superman again. We're still it's still in the in the realm of the Exchange Ray. So this is Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, Jerry Siegel, co-creator of the character, and Kurt Swan from 1961. So we're still in the business of the Exchange Ray, and Superman needs to recruit Van Z. Right? They're going to try to work out some way to help Candor. Right? So he needs someone to take Van Z's place. Uh, so he enlists, of course, his pal Jimmy Olsen. Jimmy had, you know, Jimmy pops up a few times in these stories, and I feel like these stories treat Jimmy well, and and he's he's uh, I feel like he's a helpful ally in these stories, and he has a couple of moments uh, in, in some of the later ones where I, I was impressed. You disagree? I do have one moment that we're going to get to that that helped a lot with the length of uh, World's Finest one forty three. Okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, I got you, but. So, you know, the, the two of them exchange, uh, you know, switch places. And then again, there's a mishap with the, uh, with the exchange ray where I think it's out of, it's out of that element or, or whatever well, the case at, is. At one point they said it was permanently broken. Right. So there's this beat where it seems like they're each stuck in their respective places, Van Z on earth and Jimmy in Candor. And, you know, Superman even picks Jimmy up with tweezers and he's like, well, you can live, you know, you can live on earth like this or you can, or you could live in the city. But the thing about this that I had to do a double take is Van Z is like, is, is, you know, enlarged right outside of the bottle. And he basically says, it's not as flip as I think I probably read it, but he seems more at peace with the idea of never going back to his family in this bottle than you would expect. I'll have to reread it. I missed that. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, but off the top of my head, I don't remember that. It really, and it's one of those things where, again, when I was younger, it probably wouldn't have uh, really registered all that much. But now as a husband and father, so Superman and Van Z, I just opened up the, the trade, are standing outside the bottle. And, you know, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy's going back down in there. He's like, so long, Superman. I, I, I'll miss you, pal. And <laughs> Superman's just like, goodbye, Jimmy. And Van Z says, give my love to Sylvia and the children. Tell them I'll never stop trying to get back to them. Now, 
I guess it doesn't help the way I read it. I guess you could read it more dramatically. Tell them I'll never, I'll never stop trying to get back to them. But I guess just the the way it's shown on the page where they're just like looking down in the Done. bottle. <laughs> I think this guy might have been happy to be free. Hey, Want to go out and get dinner? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And then so Jimmy ends up, uh, you know, it's a relatively short story, but he ends up briefly trying to make a life in Candor and he uses one of the viewing screens to spy on Lucy Lane and he well, sees her with another guy who's making moves on her. And, and well, the, the probably three comments I want to make, if I may, three that stuck out to me in this story. And I remember reading this story as a child. It was reprinted in a Jimmy Olsen annual, like a year or two after it was first published. So I vividly remember reading this as a child. But this did show some of the uh, the concept of Candor as a utopia. Like, they had the youth pools. Like, you know, so there was this... Jimmy's walking around the city trying to distract himself from his uh, new captive environment. And um, I think Sylvia says, oh, you know, these are the youth pools where aged people, you know, I guess once you become a real geriatric or 80s or 90s, you go through this pool and you're automatically, you come out the other end of the pool and you're youthful. You're like a 20-year-old. And then later on, Jimmy goes to the mental movies or something where everyone I think, or maybe that was Lois and the other one, but he goes to these movies where you can, it's sensory. You can you can um, smell, taste, feel all the sensations. And these creepy uh, peeping Toms are watching Lucy uh, get a kiss, and they're all experiencing the the love of the kiss. But, okay, so that was the concept of Candor as utopia. Yeah, the the sensory movie thing was was weird because the Candorians are watching re- recordings of of what they've captured from Earth. Because if I'm not mistaken, it's it's footage of Jimmy and Lucy kissing, and Jimmy is watching this in the audience, and he's feeling the sensation. And then he as realizes. everyone else is. It's <laughs> so weird. It's so weird. And then he he meets a a twin. What would be called a stewardess then, but a flight attendant. Uh, who's a dead ringer for Lucy. So she has a double there too. And he's smitten with her, but she's married. She's married. Uh, but they let her keep her job. Uh, they, yes, I noticed about that. that. Even I though I'm married, that. I'm able to keep I noticed my job. that. Now, when I was a child in the 60s, only single women could be stewardesses. And if you got married, so sad, too bad, hit the road. Um, but she was a effectively a flight attendant or a stewardess on a rocket. Why do you need rockets transporting people in this captive <laughs> city? How big is this city? And they got jungles, you know? I know. That's a good question. I know. That is a good question. How big is it meant to be? Even, even again, in its, but you know, it's all to scale, right? So, so how, how big is it meant to be that you would require rockets? Rockets. Uh, or even, even well, even to be generous, like all right, their equivalent of an, oh, what an airplane would be. Yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, why would you need an airplane? But it's also, I guess, good for them, good for these Candorians, where they're really, they're living their lives, right? Because yes. like you could, you could look at it as like, well, we're stuck here in this bottle, even Let's if we realistic. have to walk across, however long it takes, us, like, yeah. whatever. But it's like no, they've utilizing air travel and and all of this, and they have jobs and. Um. I I will say back in that newspaper strip, I we shared the one single page. That was much more to scale because when you looked at that, the bottle was huge, 
and the skyscrapers were hard to see, whereas more modern renditions just make you think it's like, you know, 25 buildings. And But in the stories, there was a jungle, there was wildlife. Um, it, it, I guess it was like an accordion. You could make it as big or as small as you needed to based on the uh, the context of the story. Yeah, very much so. And then eventually, Jimmy has offered this uh, potion, I think, right, to forget Lucy. Yeah, yeah, good Which memory. he drinks, and then he, of course, he and Vansy are able to switch places. And so he encounters Lucy, and he has no memory of and her. And he's real indifferent. Yeah, and that attracts her. Uh, and then, of course, the Kandorians through Superman get him something to restore his memories. And uh, by the time Lucy shows up at his apartment, because she's so intrigued now by this man who's just blown her off. Uh, but by this point, his memories have returned. He's like, oh, Lucy, I'm so happy to see you. And she's like, oh, I want nothing to do with you now. <laughs> Again, it, it's it's not it's like <laughs> the most nuanced depiction of, of all of this, but it's uh, I guess like a solid Jimmy story. And, and to your point... The the seeing their air travel, seeing that fountain of youth, the the, the sensory, sensory movies. movies, you know, yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting and, to start to see more of the the culture and the technology. And in also place. in that they didn't have typewriters, you could just think your thoughts into uh, uh, a machine that would transcribe them. All right, shall we move on to Superman in Candor from Superman one fifty eight? I'm with you. So this was, I mean, this was a longer this was a longer tale. This was a full a full issue length uh, story. From 1963, I mean, I guess just broad strokes, what was interesting to me about this was you have a contingent of Kandorians who who believe they've figured out a way to enlarge themselves and the city. And they have gone against and turned others against Superman for not for not utilizing this means. I think the the explanation that's given is essentially like stretching the atoms apart to grow. Right. But so there's this process that they've uncovered and, and there's this there's this push against Superman. Like, why didn't Superman utilize this? And I forget the name of the uh, Olthon or something like that, or Thanol. I can't remember the name of the bad guy. But he created this, this sentiment that Superman was deliberately keeping them captive and not letting them uh, expand for his own purposes, either jealousy or ego or whatever. But there, this was really... This was one of the few stories that was really political in some ways. Yeah, I agree. I think there was there was some meat on the bone for this one, and the setup for this is there are there are these super powered beings who are stealing uh, items and rare elements on Earth, and Superman's initial instinct is that they're escapees from the Phantom Zone, and then he realizes they're Kandorian, and he decides to go down there to investigate. and And this is what I was talking about before. Jimmy offers to come with him, where he's like, you know, you'll need you'll need help down there because you won't have your powers. Right? Yes, yes. You know, so he goes down with him. And and then again, this is where we start to get a sense that uh, there is this anti-Superman sentiment. And I think just Superman's reaction to that, that they've that they've turned against him. I mean, you know, what, what we ultimately learn is that this process that has been developed by these Kandorians is not stable, right? It, it, they'll, they'll disintegrate or whatever. But so they don't realize They it. don't realize that. Uh, but so it's not that Superman was was hoarding this process right for himself because he was jealous. But that idea was interesting, and I think Superman's reaction to them turning on him c- created some some drama. And then also too to see those like like Norcan who we meet here, and and some of the others like like Vanzi who remain loyal to him. So it's not, and, and I appreciated this because it wasn't like oh everyone's out with pitchforks against Superman. He still has his supporters. Yes, no, I you you beat me by a couple of seconds. There did seem to be that faction 
uh, that was riled up and very anti-Superman. And then they also, in the latter uh, uh, part of it, spoke about the Superman emergency squad. And they had different uniforms, but they all had the blue and red. Um, they were, you know, the, the, the allies, the, the people. Um, one thing I will say real quickly, I want to get it, it's a non sequitur, but as a child, I grew up reading comics that had two different stories all the time. But in like 1960, there were three stories in every book. So this was a rare experiment at, at, at this, they called it like a feature length, length novel. Yes. And there was a lot in here. I think this was the first time that Norcan uh, was introduced. And then, and then the first time ever that Nightwing and Flamebird, um, which, which were the Kandorian identities for Superman and Jimmy, which are perfect analogs to Batman and Robin. It's the first time they were introduced. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Was, I, no, no, I can, no, no. I can tell you're ready to say something. No, that was it. No, yeah. I mean, this was a this was a big moment. This introduces them as Nightwing and Flamebird. I like that they Superman articulates that they are taking their inspiration from Batman and Robin. They realize that they're you know they're being hunted here. They need to adopt different identities, uh, and so they they cultivate these. I mean, it's it's an inter- it's interesting. This goes back to what I was saying before to read these original stories because in the post-crisis continuity that I grew up reading, and this is my memory and my understanding of it, is you know they had to account for Dick Grayson becoming Nightwing, and right there was this idea that Superman had told him about these these heroes on Krypton, Nightwing and Flamebird, and that oh, inspires him. Right, right. But in this original version, it's like he's inspired by Dick Grayson. Yes, I didn't realize that till you just said it. That's right. Yeah. So it was cool, and then um, again, ultimately, of course. Uh, the Kandorians realize the folly of their ways that this process is not sustainable and that the city will be destroyed if they if they try to use it. So Superman helps them undo it quickly. Uh, and, and even the lead guy, again, yeah, I forget his name too, but he comes to the understanding as well, which I liked. It wasn't, he didn't end the issue bitter towards Superman. It, he, there seemed to be this understanding there. Right. This was interesting. Like I, there, like I said, there was elements of this political element, but even early on, when some of the guys are stealing the precious elements from Earth, one of them says to another, hey, well done, comrade. So I found that very interesting, and I, it harkened back to me like the Cold War with Russia and America in the 1960s, uh, but I found it interesting that one of the bad guys, the uh, the henchman for the bad guys, referred to his uh, one of the other guys as comrade, um, but also this was this was like a roller coaster ride. Like you had one panel with Superman going through the water, seeing Laurie Lamaris. And then I think Van Z for the first time put on the Nightwing costume. Yeah, there, there's there's a bit of business with them sort of switching places as well. Uh yeah, no, that was I mean, I don't for one of the longer stories that we've read so far, I don't really have a ton to say about it, but yeah, it was interesting. I, I really I did I did appreciate what what was you know kind of investigated here. Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Aw yeah. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. 
the shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. So, uh, with the dynamic duo of Candor, that's from Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 69, Edmund Hamilton, Kurt Swan, uh, from 1963, there's an outlaw uh, plaguing Candor, and Superman is called down and once again brings Jimmy with him. And, you know, what we ultimately find is that uh, the the outlaw who's dressed in a Superman costume and looks like Superman is uh, is a hypnotized, disguised Norcan, right, who's been taken over by the Superman Revenge Squad, used the Machine King. Some... some, some device right oh i didn't know if it was the machine king some sort of hypnotic or just general hypnosis yeah. we learned about the machine king uh, in, in terms of krypton's history but yeah maybe they just hypnotized him but i think the the one thing that that stood out to me in this was superman gets ill at one point right? oh, he doesn't have his jungle powers. scarlet fever yeah so he so he's 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 sick and he's delirious and he starts mumbling about his secret identity and jimmy stops him jimmy's you know? very principled jimmy, i like that i i did too jimmy was very principled and uh, kind of like uh, covers Superman's mouth so he can't hear Superman reveal his identity because he's delirious. Um, I I gotta say a couple of things. This was one story that I really, in retrospect, did not like. Um, I, I just thought it was too much, too fast. And again, one of my favorite writers, Edmund Hamilton, wrote it. But... Again, I think 158 and then World's Finest both held together much better. This just seemed to be so moving so, so fast. And it seemed random. Like there was a miniature miniature bottle in the miniature city, right? right, right. Which kind of drove me nuts. <laughs> and it was only there for a couple of panels. Um, one thing I found interesting, and Anthony, we discussed this when we discussed Superman 167. Um, they showed, uh, I think on that one, it was the computer tyrant of Col- Kolu. So there was this computer that started governing society, and then the human beings rebelled against it on Kolu. And there was a there was an image of that. And they hearkened right back to it with the Machine King here. Um, so I, I think that, if I may, I couldn't find anything in detail, but apparently Edmund Hamilton had written a number of stories about uh, the reign of the robots, like in 1931, where robots took over. So this must have been a science, uh, a theme to him. No, it's true. I mean, in terms of this Kryptonian backstory, and then again, yes, what we learn about Brainiac's home planet, this idea that the people turned to artificial intelligence and surrendered decision-making over to them, only, the to, same have, thing here. Yeah. only to have the technology uh, rebel against enslave them and them. enslave them. And it's you know, we were dealing with these issues today with AI. So this was I think, very much ahead of its time. I think I don't disagree with you. I feel like the other stories that we've talked about were kind of about something in a more substantial way. I mean, in terms of... No, go, go ahead. Oh, I got to say this. This is one of the things that annoyed me. I mean, there was so much haphazardly thrown into this. What I did not like was that solar jewel ring that gave Norcan superpowers. I did not like that. And we did see that later on in the 70s, it reappeared only once. But I'm glad we never saw it again, because 
it defeats the whole purpose. Part of the the allure of having Superman go into Kandor is he doesn't have powers, and he here if you've got some ring that just makes him the same as he is on Earth, it defeats it defeats the purpose of having him be uh, you know have the the prowess of a human. True. And just kind of tracking all of this, we've now passed the point of the exchange ray. So, you know, we had a few stories where there had to be this exchange. Now, these last couple of stories, you just, they're just it, like shrinking down. Yeah, and parachute in. Let's get our parachutes on. But what I was going to say is that, I again, I feel like the, the previous stories we looked at were, were kind of about something where there, there was more internal tension, right? Like for, for Lois, right? This idea that she, you know, finally has the love of someone just like Superman, right? And is put in this tough spot. Do I stay taking the place of, of this woman whose home is really here, this and that. Uh, Jimmy, when it seems like he's going to be trapped there forever, but he's like haunted by images of Lucy, both on the screen and in the flesh. Uh, again, when Superman and Jimmy go down the first time and become Nightwing and Flamebird and the people have turned against him and he's not sure what's going on. There's, again, a m- more to sort of delve into here. Whereas this one where they're coming down to take care of the outlaw, it just it felt more superficial. So I agree. Yeah. This was definitely one of the more I, I, forgettable ones. I didn't care for this one. I did find it funny on the cover. Jimmy says, come on, Night Nightbird, we got to get going. So they misspelled the name of the, the hero. They blended the two together. And that was a reference on the cover. You know what What I don't, I, I know I sang the praises of this trade paperback and, and it is a good trade paperback, but they don't include the covers and it bothers me. I agree with you. They should have the covers. They should be full page covers or at a minimum, we've seen this in four, some trades where four, it's like the yeah. gallery and it's like, fine, at least that's something. But I, I don't know. We're only, I mean, we're only talking another dozen pages here for that. So I, I think that was a bit of a misfire because they're, 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 they're iconic and they set up the issue and it's, it's part of, it's part of the experience. So that was a little bit of a, a little uh, bit of a bummer. Uh, the last thing I'll say that I found interesting and it, it, we, we saw in subsequent stories, I think this was the first one. And again, I didn't care for this story, but they introduced the, um, the white dragons, the flying white dragons and that will reoccur, but that kind of speaks to me about this craziness of mythology and science. Yes. Yeah, I know, that's true. I know, that does definitely have more of like that fantasy vibe as opposed to the the more technological vibe of the rest of it. All right, man, listen, we've passed the halfway point. Uh, we're more than past the halfway point in the episode. Don't worry, folks. <laughs> it's well, it's funny. It's weird to say this as we're still recording because I don't know. Maybe we do go two and a half hours and people are looking at this and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> but but in terms of our reading list, the next one is is the one that we started with, right? The feud between Batman and Superman from 1964's World's Finest, number 143, your first ever comic, that magical experience that you had by Edmund Hamilton and Kurt Swan. And... You know, mostly I'll, I'll leave this to you, but I'll just give the setup real quick. And you and I, we've talked about this. One of the episodes of my other podcast, My Comic Shop History, that you were on a couple of years ago, we talked about this. And I, I surprised you during the recording by sharing that I had tracked down uh, for, for myself a copy of World's Finest 143 because I wanted to read it in its original form. And I knew it meant so much to you. And we so we spoke about it a little bit then. But, you know, the setup for this one is wild because you start with Batman and Superman, right, in action, and a bullet ricochets off of Superman and hits Batman, right? And he's out of commission for a little while, and he's convalescing in the hospital, and he's he's had a crisis of confidence. He feels like, I can't, I'm a liability, I can't keep up with you, Superman, I can't be part of this team anymore. It's the most down-on-himself Batman that I think I've probably like, ever seen. And Superman's solution is to is to invent 
a crisis in Kandor, these metalloids, and he enlists one of his Kandorian comrades down there to, to, uh, to sort of generate this threat uh, that ultimately proves to be real, and we, you know, we'll get there, but that's sort of the jumping off point where Batman feels like he can't do this anymore, and Superman's like, no, I need your help. There are these metalloids down in Kandor, and that sets them off. I guess, and this kind of circles back to where we started and how our first impressions of comics shape the way or can shape the way we view certain characters. I mean, I guess to whatever extent you can answer this, because I know it's kind of a big question, but meeting this version of Batman, right, as well as a Superman who, and I guess this cuts both ways. On the one hand, he cares enough about Batman to to <laughs> to generate this ruse, but on the other hand, he's really psychologically manipulating someone who's a friend and an ally. So that version of Batman, who's so quick to be like, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. And this version of Superman, who's like, I'm going to invent this threat. So to, you can regain your confidence. To help Batman, you know, kind of snap out of this. How, if at all, did that shape the way you came to view these characters? Okay. Uh, I thought more, for today's discussion, I thought more about this story than all the others combined. Again, being an eight-year-old and reading this, more than anything else, this really drove home the fact that this sh- this shows the importance that Superman assigns to their friendship and their partnership. So, I, I know it's silly, and it and and it is kind of weird. Like, hey, this is a very unusual Batman. He's so despondent and morose and just just dejected. And he's, he's, you know, it's so out of character. But I do think Mort Weisinger made Batman a supporting character in the Superman editorial. I think he made Batman just a supporting character. Um, but it's, it's out of character for Batman. But the way, the way I left that story when I read it in the summer of 1964, and the way I still feel about it, it is it drove home the friendship between the two guys, and it showed the importance that Superman assigned to how important that friendship and that partnership was. Um, now, uh, the two things that I, being, having read it 60 years later, holy cow, it's kind of creepy, like, hey, Batman, look at all these things we've done where we've we've stolen your ideas and your you know, the dark character and the Robin character, right? <laughs> Look at all these things. I mean, it's like single white female or something like that, where, um, you know, one person tries to su- supplant the identity of another. And then the last thing I'll say, um, Batman should have regained his confidence because everything Superman tried to manipulate blew up in his face. So Batman should figure, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not doing too bad. Oh, the last thing I'll say is in a modern time, the immediately preceding story was the introduction of the composite Superman. And I think a modern writer would have kind of woven the two together because in the prior story, Superman got his ass kicked by this character that had all the powers of the Legion of Superheroes. And then he vanished. The powers wore off, but Superman and Batman didn't know that. I think if you would woven those two together, it might have been more of a backdrop for why Batman would be demoralized and despondent and conceivably uh, ready to retire. Oh, interesting. No, that's a fair point. Again, I I enjoyed this. I, again, the, the fact that it means so much to you definitely, you know, enhanced 
my opinion of it. And I, I, I read it even more closely, but I, I'm no, I agree with you. I think that again, it's easy to sort of look at the aspects of it that feel out of character, like Batman being so down on himself or the, the aspects that might fall into that, you know, the Superman is a dick trope that you, know, you look at a lot of these silver age covers and, and some of the things that he's saying or doing, right. There's a whole thing about it. Uh, but no, I agree. I think the positive view of it is, is the bedrock of that friendship and, uh, and in particular what, I mean, I guess from both sides too, it's like Batman cares so much, like he doesn't want to be a liability. And on Superman's side, he cares so much about his friend and his, and his partner in this, that he's willing to go to those lengths. Uh, and when they're in Candor, and of course Superman is powerless, they have this duel, and right, that's the, the, you know, the feud between Superman and Batman and the cover, right, is the two of them going at it in this sort of like gladiator-esque yeah, or, setup Or here. medieval England, you know, yeah. I mean, that's what amazed me, again, being the first issue and... And learning all about Candor and learning about Batman and Robin and then these analogs to Batman and Robin down there and Nor- Norcon. Um, but then also the super science with the, the metalloids. And they have these wrists, they have these wristbands that, that turn them into metalloids. Yeah, Colossus to, or Feral Lad. Right. And then they need to remove them in order to turn them back into humans. And essentially the, the Candorian Superman was, was working with his, his brother, was the rogue and and you know use the this metalloid process for evil purposes and that's what made this pretend threat a real one and and of course even after they have their gladiator style battle where Superman gets the drop or Batman gets the drop on Superman right but he's still pissed off and he's like I'm out of here yeah uh, and then Superman gets taken by the metalloids and Jimmy's like no like this is real like you gotta help and of, of course they come to his rescue and they're they're good by the end of it yes yeah yeah uh well the panel I was going to talk about. This story would have been half its length. At one point in there, you know, Superman has, you know, been knocked out or beaten up by one of the metalloids. And Batman, oh, I think Batman and Robin save Superman. They get that awning or they get that pole that holds up something and they use it like a ram and they 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 or uh, you know, like a weapon and they push push the metalloid back and he runs away and they go to help Superman. And then Jimmy comes in and this is the Jimmy from the TV show, you know, you know, basically goes, Hey Superman, don't you think you're really getting a little too realistic with this fake, fake menace thing? You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Ah, ah, Jimmy. Ah, I see again, being my first, well, a couple of things I do want to say about this exact same month. This is when uh, Julia Schwartz and Carmine Infantino and John Broom introduced the new look Batman in Detective 327, where for the first time ever, he gets the yellow insignia. So concurrent with this, simultaneous, there was this effort to make Batman more interesting. And many of the stories that I read that my grandfather bought me two months after this appeared really portrayed Batman as much more of a competent detective, more of a, like a Sherlock Holmes. So I saw this more as a con, uh, contrivance for this story. I didn't think it was uh, representative, but all the world's finest stories are kind of jumbled, haphazard. Um, I do remember a couple of years later, my brother Charlie and I having a discussion, not not with out of this story, but other world's finest stories at the time. And we discussed like, a couple of things like 
gee, Batman, why don't you ask Superman for some fabric from Kandor, right? <laughs> you know, it might help you and Robin. And why don't you ask him, hey, can I have a couple of those flying belts when I go back to Gotham? <laughs> I, that's a. I think that's all fair. And my brother, uh, I was I was ten or eleven, and he was like nine. And we remember. I mean, we geez, why didn't why doesn't he get some of those flying belts, or why doesn't he get some some fabric and make the Batman and Rob, Robin costumes so they're bulletproof? Because in the Silver Age, it was the material. It wasn't. It wasn't the the John Byrne like. Hey, I've got this field that uh, generates. Um, you know protects my clothes. Right, right, right. It's so funny. I I, I guess the my, my final thought on this is I think this this is a good example of look, maybe the execution being limited just due to the storytelling of the day, but the idea really being a valid one because in a scenario where you would have a Batman and a Superman working together, as much as Batman has this incredible investigative mind and the toys and all of that, uh you know, they're there might be some sort of inferior inferiority complex at play here. And, and yeah, in terms of their physical capabilities in the field, and, and especially it's one thing when they're going up against sort of Batman villains, but when we're, we're dealing with sort of larger threats, Batman potentially feeling inadequate or potentially feeling like he's holding Superman back. I don't, I think there's some validity to that idea. He might feel that way. So I think the idea of this is a valid one, the way it, it unfolds so fast uh, it, you know, it, it feels very abrupt and, and, and all that, but I think the idea of it is is a strong one. The final thing, if I may. That <laughs> you I, know how many times you said this is the last thing I'm going to say? Uh, <laughs> but it's your it's your first comic, man. I get it. Yeah. We, we could spend as much time as you want on this. Well, because the, other thing, the ones that are coming up, uh, you know, we have just a preview for the audience. We have a two-parter with Lois and Lana. And then really, Let My People Grow. I think that's, you know, obviously that's the last story here and where Candor is restored and, and where we'll finish. So we don't have a ton left to get through. Absolute final comment on this story. Promise. Uh, but this did tap into the standard themes that Edmund Hamilton always used, you know, his themes of identity and his themes of dislocation, where he had, you know, one character take on the role and identity of another. Clearly, he had that with the, the Nightwing and Batman. Um, and then you take a character and put them out of their your comfort zone. You put them in a foreign environment, throwing... Batman and Robin into Candor uh, um, really played to those tropes, those themes that Hamilton used a lot. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose and Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Many of you have already used this code, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. This brings us to uh, a pair of stories, The Demon in the Bottle and Courtship Kryptonian Style. These are two stories, connected stories from Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 76 and 78, uh, both from 1967 and both by Leo Dorfman and Kurt Schaffenberger. You know, the story opens with Lois and Lana surfing 
or as they call it, <laughs> riding the pipe. Now, I'm not a surfer. I don't know if that term is still used, but just out of context, it <laughs> definitely <laughs> calls to mind something else. But anyway, that's how we start with the two of them riding the pipe. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, as a child, I, I do remember purchasing and reading number 78. But this is the first uh, I read. And geez, you kind of could have vaporized number 76 in this story and just done the second issue. It's weird. It's a weird, it's a weird pair of stories. So while they're surfing, Lois finds what appears to be a genie in a bottle named Vitar. If I don't know how you pronounce it. That's kind of what I was saying in my head. I'm, I agree with you. And he, again, purports to be this genie who's been trapped and he'll make her wishes come true. And she wants uh, to, to be the apple of Superman's eye. And then the next night at this ball, Superman's all about her and dancing with her. And, you know, this seems to put stock in it. But, of course, Lana was suspicious about this business with, with what Lois might have found on the, uh, you know, in, in the water. So she goes back and she meets Vitar and he promises to make her wish come, come true and provides her with this uh, indestructible fabric that she makes costumes uh, with for Superman, like royal wear and uh, an outer space wear and, and, and all, this, all this sort of stuff. And uh, what Superman realizes uh, and what we come to learn is that Vitar is not a genie in a bottle, but is actually a Kandorian who has not only been pretending to be this genie, but he's also been posing as Superman. So and the wish that he made come true for Lois at the ball was, was Vitar pretending to be Superman, and this indestructible fabric that he created was fabric from Kandor. Yes, because he was, he was trying to marry one of these two. Yes, he's whoever... watched Lois and Lana yeah, on the Kandorian <laughs> viewing screen. Uh, and he's yeah. also a member of the Superman emergency squad. Yeah, under the direction of... Donnell. Donnell or Don. In my head, I was saying Donnell. Donnell. But <laughs> I, it's funny. I went with very, like, the very earth, earth, you know, earth-like pronunciations of these names. But I agree. Maybe Deke Z or whatever you call the other guy and Donnell. We'll go, we'll go with that. That puts a little bit more of, a, of an alien spin on it. But yet another double. Yeah. <laughs> yet, yet another, another double. double. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, but he, com- you know, he comes and one of his, you know, one of his buddies is sort of, uh, you know, uh, in on this with him. And yeah, he comes to earth to try to oh. woo one of them. His buddy is Hapel, H-A-P-E-L. So, geez, uh, the L family was pretty proliferate in, uh, I guess not many of them were in the city where Jor-El lived. Yeah, I guess not. I guess the L's really, uh, really, really spread out. I know there are quite a, quite a few of them floating around in the bottle city. But yeah, I mean, it's a weird, so again, this idea that this Kandorian is in fact, she's watching Lois and Lana on the viewing screen is infatuated with them, uh, is annoyed with Superman that he, uh, you know, has not, has made not pursued a romance, right. Yeah. Has not made a move with one of them. And so again, he comes to earth, pretends to be this genie, pretends to be fulfilling their wishes, uh, impersonates Superman, Superman spills the beans and uncovers all of this. And then, Lois and Lana make uh, quite the surprising choice that yeah, tees the up the next issue, issue. The second issue. Hey, you know what? We will go into Kandor, uh, and we'll see if we do want to marry you or yeah. take it to the next step. What was your read? Because at the end of seventy six, I I thought like a lot of these stories, there was going to be a little bit of a of a of a twist, right? Like that they weren't really going to to entertain this. But then you read seventy eight, and no, they seem to be pretty serious. Yes, and. Uh, there was some sort of like um, 
memory machine that would allow you, that it w- you would choose your best career or what you'd be most suited for. And I think, well, the interesting thing is, and we're going to realize that uh, Vitars has this woman who has a crush on him, who's like in the shadows a little bit, and she kind of sabotaged the machine. So when when Lois and Lana first use it, it, it like hurt them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then after they got it worked out, and she was hitting in the shadows, uh, pining for Vitar, uh, they revealed that Lois, I think, should be a detective and Lana should be an archaeologist, which I found interesting because her father was an archaeologist. But they also introduced some version of uh, Kandorian... Karate, where Lois becomes proficient in that. I remember as a child thinking, wow, that's good. That'll help her when she gets back to Earth and she can defend herself a little bit more. I remember that impression as a child reading the story. Yeah, there's also, this came up in one of the earlier stories, but a device or some other artificial means of teaching uh, the the Earth, Earth people the language. Right? So there's like- Oh, yeah, they use that in 143, Batman and uh, Robin- had some machine that would almost overnight teach them the language because they were studying some of the history tapes. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm a little split on this because on the one hand, the language I guess doesn't bug me so much, but you know, like Lois learning this form of martial arts, you know, through through this device, it's like okay, I it, it reminds me of the television show Chuck and the Intersect and the, oh, the yeah. knowledge and abilities that he was able to access like that, but. To the writer's credit uh, across these stories, and this this was another theme that I guess I kind of noticed, uh, you, you definitely saw them, in a lot of instances, anticipating the audience's questions, right? There were, there were a bunch of things, like when Superman flies Jimmy to the fortress, right, in multiple issues, and he's, like, he's covering in the, like, the, the, in cape the cape is over yeah. his head, and the caption tells us, like, Superman put Jimmy in his cape to protect him from the Arctic winds. The friction, winds. yeah. Right. Because, you know, some kid reading that might be like, how is he, you know, how is he not freezing to death like this? So there were things like that. Or, you know, how would how would, you know, Batman or Lois or Jimmy be able to communicate with these people who were speaking a different language? Well, there's this device that teaches them the language instantly. So even though sometimes it's a little clunky, and it's like, OK, but I like the idea that they were accounting for these questions that people would have. They were anticipating. And, you know, as I'm reading it, it's again, it's a little, little obvious, but it's like, OK, no, I, I appreciate that now. We haven't touched on this, but a unique feature in issue number 78, we're introduced to the Superman lookalike squad. Mm-hmm. There was one panel where there's there's twins for Perry White, for Jimmy, and in addition to, I'm calling him Donnell, in addition to Donnell, there's also Valdon, yep. who's a spitting image of Clark Kent. Yes. Only Clark Kent, though. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, I mean, Lois and Lana, like, they're they're living in, in Candor. They've been given these new careers. Uh, the other bit of business is that Vitar has been courting them, but realizes that both of them are too hung up on Superman. And so he concocts this contest and between the two of them, right? And the winner gets a serum or potion or something like that that will give them powers. The idea being they can then return to Earth and be on equal footing with Superman, and then he'll be able to pursue a relationship with them. The reason he hasn't thus far is that being with a human, it would be too much of a liability. He would put them in danger and things like right, that. Right, right. 
So there's this. And like you said, you also have the ex-girlfriend of Vitar who's sabotaging things in the background. Then later, and I guess the final straw for Lois and Lana is their doubles try to help each of them uh, in this contest here. And it just gets too convoluted. And they're like, we're, we're out, we're out. <laughs> but before that, you're right. We have this scene with the lookalike squad. I did write it down. Yeah, like you said, Voldon as Clark. Sylvia, of course, we've met before as Lois as double. Zolar is the Jimmy. Ar- Aron, like Aaron, <laughs> like Aaron uh, for Perry. And Tiara is Lana's double. You know, also going back to Sylvia for a second here, it's like Sylvia is not even a Kandorian double of Lois. She's She's an earthling. She's an earthling who's a double for Lois who's living here. It's like, I I don't know. It's again, I I guess just a a product of its time. It's like so, (laughs) so silly, but I don't know, maybe endearing as well in its own way. And look, it made an impression because. You know, we've been we've been talking about doing this episode for a long time. And on, you know, numerous calls we've had, we've talked about Candor. You've mentioned the lookalike squad. So like clearly it it made an impression. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us now to our finale here, Let My People Grow. And I think it was actually one of our audience members who first tipped me off to this story even existing because I, I was probably when we did our whatever happened to the man of tomorrow discussion. Uh, because at that point in the, in the story, I think there's a, I think there's a replica of the bottle city. And when we talked about it, I, I didn't realize that it was a replica. I didn't realize that the, the city had already been restored and someone was like, oh no, like this actually happened. So, uh, I only really kind of learned about this in the recent past. And this is the first time that I read the story. So this was from Superman 338 by Len Wein and Kurt Swan in 1979. And this is the full circle moment here. This is the fulfillment of this uh, you know, decades long story of Kandor. And we open with Superman collecting energy from a supernova, gives him the energy he needs to restore Kandor. I think what I, what I really liked about this was again, the full circle moment where he needs to make sure that this will work. And the way to test that is to be shrunk by Brainiac's original shrinking ray. And then if this, this, ray that he's developed works that proves okay i can use it on the actual city and its inhabitants so it is this full circle moment where he's got a he's you know he uh is able to bait brainiac and engage him in battle and he gets shrunk and he he tests the device on himself but it was it was right back where we started with fighting brainiac and that saucer i thought it was a, a cool full circle moment you used perfect words i i share that uh to give it away for the audience superman was able to enlarge, you know, restore everyone to their normal dimensional height and weight and stature. But the flaw Superman went through, it was the buildings didn't have the cohesive ability to stay together. So he enlarges everyone, and then basically all the humans are alive, or the the Kryptonian beings, but all their buildings are destroyed. And then I think Van Z or one of the, the senior uh, uh, governing people or leaders kind of says, Hey, look, we got to live for ourselves. You've you've protected us and you've sheltered us, but we need to live for ourselves. Uh, because Superman swears, like, I'll stay with you. I'll help rebuild, you know, and he feels crestfallen. And then I think um, uh, Van Z pulls a Hadley on him, clocks him. Yeah, from Adventures of Superman, the TV show, yeah. yeah. Uh, knocks him out. Supergirl and Superman get on this spaceship. And as they leave... Uh, I guess it was the planet Rokin. Rokin moves into a different dimension, which I found interesting because that I think would obviate, you know, well, let's just fly out there for a weekend or something like that. Yeah, it was, 
it was a bit, you know, it's interesting. It was a bittersweet ending because there's this moment of triumph when the city is restored and it's this big double page spread. And, and like you said, then the city disintegrates. And so very, you know, very bittersweet. But I think what was interesting, even before that, the fact that the Kandorians didn't want to be restored on earth, right? They wanted their own planet under a red sun. They wanted to recreate their life on Krypton, right? To the extent possible. And, you know, yes, on the one hand, it's, it's convenient because if, they enlarge under a yellow sun on or near Earth. That creates a whole different story, which we're going to get to in a couple of episodes with the new Krypton saga. But, you know, this sort of obviates that, like you said. Uh, so that choice was interesting. And then, like you said, well, we don't find out until the end that they've picked this planet that's going to phase into a different dimension. So it's like it's not they, they really want it to be self-sufficient after yes. all this time. And I don't know. I think that's a pretty powerful message. And. And again, even though, even if it's born out of the convenience of like, look, we can't have all these Kandorians now flying around, like we need to get them off the board. But even that aside, I just think it's interesting and it says a lot about the people. And again, I'm not a psychologist, but maybe there, I think there is some validity to that after everything that they had experienced, right? Essentially being these, these pets, right? The equivalent of yes. that and having didn't to be careful. Didn't they use that word, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And to me, their willingness to go, look, we're going to do it ourselves, kind of harkens back to the frontier spirit of America, right? Like, look, go west, young man. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I, uh, like I said, I, I by this point, I knew that this story was out there, so I wasn't shocked reading it. But at the same time, I, like, I think what's cool, you can look at that trade paperback, and it has a conclusion in a way, I think most other other curated collections of silver stories like wouldn't have. So I Don't. think that's a really neat bit of business that uh, they put that, that punctuation at the end of it. I mean, back in the day where you, what memories do you have of this? Were you like, yes, this is great. Like he finally did it. Were you sad that they were off the board? Did you assume they were going to come back? Like what, what was your, I'm so glad time? you asked that. So uh, I, I still have this issue, this exact issue um, in, in one of my long boxes at home, this exact issue. And the preceding issue was all about Donnell acting as Superman on Earth, which kind of was a tease, like, hey, we're going to reintroduce the Kandorians. I, because I read uh, the book when I was 10 years old, I knew Superman was going to be enlarging them. I love what you said now, as we went from the first story to the final story, reading those those interval stories, like, you know, with Jimmy, you know, the boy in the bottle and World's Finest 143 and Superman 158. This is nice because, like you said, it, it ties everything together. Um, I did like that they moved to another dimension or uh, phased out, but I think there was the door was kind of open, like uh, under certain conditions, you know, we can phase back in and we could, I think in subsequent stories, on occasion, Superman would rocket to that place. Uh, I, I know after Crisis on Infinite Earths, when Supergirl died, Superman took uh, Kara Zor-El's body back and uh, gave it to Jor-El, uh, or Zor-El and um, Allura. Oh, yeah, because by that point, we had established they they were there. That's right. Yeah. Because there's that goodbye between them. Yeah. Uh, I was happy for it. I kind of thought it that, well... I was happy for it. I thought it was time, right? But this was like, hey, setting the stage where Superman doesn't have a million 
immediate copies. It's more just Supergirl and uh, and Crypto. It was only the three of them. Um, so I thought it, it, it kind of bolstered Superman's identity, made him more individual. Uh, and I, I did think they leave the door open if he, he for his ability to get back there. Um, pretty much that's it. I mean, yeah. No, it's cool. I mean, I, yeah, I, uh, I, I enjoyed, I like that he, I like that he figured it out that it was clearly something he had been working on and he figured out this way and it wasn't perfect, but it at least restored the people. I, two things I'll say. I loved the first page where Superman's flying into the Nova and he had some like, uh, armor on mm-hmm. and he was using it to collect, um, all the precious elements of the solar energy. I thought that was pretty dramatic. I did read somewhere where Len Wein, who wrote this, uh, said he came to regret writing this story. I know, he regretted I saw that it, too. Um, which I thought was interesting. But he made the point, like, even though he had read about it for over twenty years, you know, somebody coming in brand new might still be excited by it. But I, th- I pers- personally think it was a good move. It was the, kind of the very thing John Byrne did later on, where hey. We're not going to have a million Kryptonians flying around. It it undermines, it dilutes Superman's identity as being the survivor of Krypton. I, I think what also struck me was the timing of this, that this was 79. Like if this had been 85. 83, 84, 85, where we knew we were building towards crisis and it's like, okay, it's time to kind of wrap up some of this business. Yeah. But they did this ahead of time. So it really was this conscious decision, it wasn't, okay, this period of time is really coming to an end. We got to wrap this up. It was a conscious decision to move that piece off the board, you know, for better or worse. But look, you know, all in all, do I, do I gravitate towards this incarnation of the bottle city and its prevalence in the book and the ease of access and the number of doubles? No, I, I don't. But it was really interesting to read. And one of the reasons why, I mean, look, we're in the middle now of this doomed planet event here that we're doing on the podcast and coming up, right? Our remaining three episodes, we're going to look at the new Krypton arc from the Lois and Clark television series. That wasn't Candor specifically, but it's the same kind of idea that a part of Krypton survived and now they're coming to earth and Clark is caught between the two worlds. And then we're going to finish out this event by taking a look at that, like, year or two year long new Krypton saga from the comics uh, before new 52, where again, Kandor is reintroduced and enlarged. And again, Superman is very much caught between those two worlds. And so I wanted to kind of have this episode after we did the Krypton TV series, this episode as kind of a little bit of a bridge to look at those Kandor stories and what that was all about at the time. Uh, So I'm glad that we spent the time to do this because I found it fascinating. I hope the audience did too, whether people are familiar with these stories or I imagine in a lot of instances people probably haven't read these stories uh and if you haven't if there are any that (laughs) that we talked about that really struck you I hope you'll check them out because they're uh if nothing else even just getting from that historical perspective they're really kind of fascinating to look at so Rich I thank you for taking the time to do this homework and you took copious notes and you came here you here in studio today and I know Candor has been a big part of your your Superman fandom and it featured prominently in your first comic book story. So I appreciate you sharing all of your, your knowledge and your insight and your enthusiasm for Candor with us. Thank you for letting me unpack this with you and for you doing the reading such that we could have this conversation. Uh, look, uh, six months ago, I figured I'll skim through it and I'll come up with some speaking points. I got very energized reading this. It, 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 
took me back to a story that I love and a time that I love. But um, I was very impressed with this. Like you said, the cohesiveness and the first story and the last story just being tied together so well. So uh, I, I'm excited. I'm going to read a couple of the other things in the future that uh, that the uh, the Triangle Era, you know, with the Electric Superman. I want to read a little more about that. Um, and I do want to read um, the other more, more recent one, World of New Krypton. Cool. Excellent. I will say thus far, we're a few episodes into this event, and my my interest in and enthusiasm for the Krypton part of the mythology uh, is higher than it's ever been. So I've been getting a lot out of this. I hope the audience has as well. Make sure you come back next week for another all new episode. Thank you as always for tuning in. And of course, it's about what you do. It's about action. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, another exciting episode in the adventures of Superman, an episode by episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all.